welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, good morning, Pastor Scott, and thanks for getting together with me to talk about Roman Catholicism. Well, um, good morning. Good to be here. <laughs> good morning. And so I will be talking with... Um, Keith Little, the cordial Catholic here in a bit, and he's a convert from the evangelical faith to Roman Catholicism, and this will be coming up in a week or two. Sure. So I ask you if I could talk with you from um, the Protestant perspective of what your thoughts are on Roman Catholicism and just any problems, and I don't know, just I don't know where we're going to go, but um, you mentioned that you're not an expert in Roman Catholicism, but your thing is more of, um, you said, history and... Um, yeah, my, my expertise wouldn't be... It's not like I've spent a great deal of time studying the positions of Roman Catholicism. I'm familiar with them um, for a number of reasons, but my areas of expertise, I mean, if you could even call it that, my areas of knowledge uh, would tend to be uh, history in general, uh, the Reformation period especially, which is where Protestantism and Roman Catholicism went their separate ways, right. and um, then just theology and Bible in general. So right. I have a, have, a, have a pretty good idea here and there where, where we diverge and why I would um, see the Roman Catholic position, especially on the doctrines of salvation, as uh, defective. Okay. Um, now, when it comes to, you mentioned history, and that's the thing that for a lot of people, um, it seems like that's what draws them into Roman Catholicism, Rome, the Roman Catholic faith when they're thinking about the um, you know, early church fathers and so forth. They, they would say um, it looks more Catholic than Protestant. Well, and, and, and part of that is a defect in modern evangelicalism. Um, and then second of all, a misreading of history. Because, not to get ahead of myself, but the thing that the Protestant reformers, especially you think of Martin Luther and John Calvin, but, but the others also, John Knox, um, um, you can go down the line, um, where they were adept was showing where the medieval Catholic Church had not only completely repudiated Scripture in many places, but had drifted far from the Church Fathers. You know, Luther and Calvin especially were very adept at um, proclaiming the faith as proclaimed by the church fathers and were continually saying, you know, you, you, you've departed from the faith as historically preached. So they saw themselves as restoring not only the apostolic faith, but the historic uh, faith of the, the church fathers. They were, you know, they, it's, it's modern evangelicalism that sadly neglects the fathers and so is pretty ignorant. And I understand the, the tendency of someone to um, want something historically anchored because unfortunately much many expressions of modern evangelicalism are, you know, firmly planted in midair. You know, they, 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 they don't have any history that goes back before Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's that historical ignorance, that rootlessness, that especially the American model of, of innovation, you know, whatever, what, we'll, just, we'll just try this, we'll just try that. And yeah, many evangelical churches look like something that was founded last week because it was. And I understand that that drive and desire for for something rooted. Uh, I would advocate for something that is rooted um, 
much more deeply than evangelicalism, I would say rooted in Reformation truth, which is deeper than 1600. Mm-hmm. You know, Reformation truth that goes back uh, to uh, Augustine, that goes back to the first century, uh, that, that you know, we need that deep strain. And so evangelicalism has in many ways cheated people of that historical rootedness. And so they go looking for it either in Roman Catholicism or um, Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. You know, there are famous cases where um, there have been well-known people like the Bible Answer Man right. who, have, who have gone to Orthodoxy for the same reason. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I get that because there are times that I'm tired of um, evangelical shallowness. And that is a, that's a, that's a valid criticism. Well, so I, sometimes I, I think the Reformation was influenced or came out of the Enlightenment and with the rediscovery of, of Greek, the Greek language. And, I, and then uh, people were getting back into um, not the Latin Vulgate, but rather the original uh, language of the New Testament. And that was something that uh, maybe fed the Reformation. But I guess not only would they be getting back into that, but they'd be getting back into the Church Fathers, whereas previously maybe um, was Greek kind of like something that was almost like a lost language for uh, the medieval years? For the the medieval world, um, in many ways it was. And so it wasn't widely available um, until you had someone like Erasmus come along and, um, you know, give, give the first widely available text. But it was there. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that I, I would call the Reformation, you didn't use these words, but I wouldn't call the Reformation the child of the Enlightenment. Okay. They, are, they, are, they, are, they are rather siblings. You know, they came along, t- they came along um, pr- pretty concurrently because though we tend to date the Reformation from Martin Luther, um, we forget that it was rolling along well before that. You know, uh, Jan Hus uh, in Bohemia, uh, nearly a century before Luther um, in England, you had... Um, Tyndale, uh, and and before him, Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, he is called, and many others. And you had, in fact, many reform movements. I I just finished a really good book um, on uh, the history of Christianity from that middle period, the 500s, to the Reformation. Um, And it was was really good because you had a number of reform movements trying to go back to Scripture within Catholicism well before Luther. Mm-hmm. You know, and Luther was aware of these, and he, he quoted these guys. And then, of course, that's one reason he got condemned, because they said, well, you're just another John Hus. Hmm. And at first he said, well, no, I'm not, because, you know, his upbringing was John Hus as a heretic. Then he read John Hus and said, hey, guess what? I am, because <laughs> he's saying Scripture alone, mm-hmm. uh, not Scripture without reference to the traditions. But, but it, and that's, I don't know if you want to get into this later, that's, that's an essential difference between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity, mm-hmm. is that um, Roman Catholicism puts history and tradition on an equal footing. Right. Which ultimately means tradition wins, because tradition then becomes the grid through which you read the scriptures. Right. And especially tradition as located within the Pope. Hmm. Right. And, right. That, and that was Luther's big... Um, point is that popes and councils have contradicted one another and they have erred, Mm -hmm. that they are not a sure guide. Mm -hmm. And when popes or councils contradict the clear statements of Scripture, we must go with Scripture, Uh, whereas within traditional Roman Catholicism, if if there's an apparent contradiction, we go with the living voice of tradition. You know, and so you end up in two different directions, right? Right. 
So you can end up with something like a purgatory um, or the, the adoration of Mary, um, the, um, the uh, prayers to the saints, these kinds of things. Okay. So in people, um, Roman Catholics would say, well, tradition gave us the canon, you know, so there, there's got to be some kind of... Um, Anyway, that's that's what their response would well, be. Well, sure, the, the, they they will say the church gave us the canon. I would say that the canon gave us the church. Okay. That Christ gave the church, and Christ gave the apostles with the word to guide the church, so that the canon is not rooted in the um, the canon is not rooted in the church and under the church's authority, but vice versa. Uh, so the church didn't create the canon. The church received the canon from Christ and the apostles. And so both the church and the canon are gifts of Christ, you know, and are rooted in his authority. Um, it's, it, 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 and that's a, I think it's a fairly recent development in Catholic theology too. You know, we often think of the Catholic theology, especially those who convert to it, that, oh, it's something that has been stalwart and unchanged for all these years. And, you know, that's patently absurd. Uh, it, it, one of the, I mean, even Catholic theologians study development in the Catholic church. And um, you have doctrines that develop over time, um, one of them being papal infallibility. Hmm. You go back to the church fathers, and uh, there were a number of them. And again, had I had time to prepare, I would have brought the names, uh, but, but I can get them to you later. You have a number of um, you know, church fathers, um, well, like Gregory the Great, who, who explicitly um, condemned the idea of papal authority. Hmm. Okay. Um, you know, and, and of course, let's not forget, uh, before the great uh, schism, mm-hmm. what, 10, what is that, 1065? That sounds right, 10 something, uh, between East and West, all of the Western fathers, I mean, I'm sorry, all of the Eastern fathers, every last one of them to a man would condemn the idea of papal infallibility. Hmm. And that was what the, the big fight was about because their view was you had, you had a number of co-equal patriarchies. Mm-hmm. You know, even to this day, you know, who is the sole head of the Eastern Church? Well, there's not one mm-hmm. because that's one of their core doctrines which is older than the Catholic Church and older than their doctrines. Um, so, you know, so there's these differences between Roman Catholics are um, so some Protestants, you know, they wouldn't even see Roman Catholicism as like Christian. Mm-hmm. So even though the the differences are, um, you know, pretty major, uh, do you see them as outside the camp of Christendom? Um, the wrong way to answer that question is with a broad brush, yeah. right? So you know, it'd be like saying, "Do I? I'm 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 a Baptist. That I do I see every Baptist inside the camp of Christianity? Right. Absolutely not. Right. <laughs> you know." Uh, there, there are many who use the same uh, label as me that are, that are, you know, as far from, from biblical Christianity as this can be. Right. Um, and so let, let's go back first of all to our commonalities. Where Catholics and Protestants, historic Protestants, and I'm going to use that because Protestantism is unfortunately a, a varied thing. Um, but biblical Protestants and Bibli- uh, and um, his traditional Catholics agree. Um, on the what we call the ecumenical creeds, right? right those basic creeds. Mm-hmm. So my, my Catholic brother or sister, um, 
is is is, is entirely orthodox if they're if they're holding to Catholic teaching on things like the Trinity, mm-hmm. um, on the two natures of Christ, um, on you know, all of those things. You know, we would be probably not a probably not a mm-hmm. inch between us. Right. Um, where official Catholic teaching went astray, especially after the Reformation, was the Council of Trent. You know that anathematized the uh, the, the very doctrines of uh, salvation by grace through faith alone. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it said, if you hold to grace through faith alone, you you are anathema. And mm-hmm. so, if my Catholic friend holds to Catholic doctrine, because that's never been repudiated, they would say that I'm outside the camp. Right. Uh, except Vatican II came along, and, and and now Vatican II is willing to call me a, uh, a separated brethren, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of a little confusing when you because Trent anathematizes me. Um, Vatican II um, makes a a back room for me in the house, you know. I can slip in the back door over there. Um, but as for my view, if someone holds to traditional Catholic teaching and believes that they are saved. Um, uh, not only by grace through faith, but by the works of merit that they that that they contribute, um, that person would be outside of the faith um, because because it's it's not depending on anything that I've done. Paul makes that very clear. Mm-hmm. Now, in my experience, I've had friendships with many, you know, Catholic friends, and. We discuss those things, and contrary to the official doctrinal statements of their church, they hold that it's grace through faith in Christ. And so, I would say that that person is is likely a believer. I don't understand, you know, remaining within a church whose official doctrines, you know, contradict Scripture in that way. Um, so, do did the Catholics say it's a combination of um, Christ merit plus the individual's merit, or is it more of it's Christ merit, and um, and that's played out through them, um, or that, or it's Christ merit that um, get His grace that gives um, the person um, the ability to live righteously. I mean, now it's sounding really Protestant, but yeah. Uh, well, you, you, and again, and again, let let if we're talking like. Um, traditional folk Catholicism in South America or somewhere like that, uh-huh. uh, it tends to devolve into pure works, okay. right? I do these things. You know, when our, our teams that go to Mexico, you know, basically you keep you keep this stuff, and if you keep this stuff well enough, you're still not going to get there, and then there's purgatory to, to get you through. And um, in Luther's era, you know, that's what he was protesting against. Protestants are protesters. He was protesting against um, the, uh, the the doctrine of uh, of meritorious works, and that's that, that language is used a lot. Official Catholic teaching, as I understand it, you know, you, of course, you begin with infant baptism, which um, is is one of the seven sacraments. So you have to have the seven sacraments. The sacraments tie you to Christ through the Church, and so um, you wash away original sin, and now you're pristine and pure. Um, but then. Um, as you continue in sin, and what there there are the the mortal sins, right? That put you out, that, that, that destroy grace, and then there are the uh, venial or? venial sins, you know, which don't, you know. Then you, you you confess to the priest and get seven hail marys, you know. In that traditional system, um, whatever the official teaching is, people practice a, a kind of of law righteousness, right? Now again, there are Baptist churches mm-hmm. that 
technically hold to salvation by grace through faith alone, but practice salvation by keeping these laws and rules. You know, hair a certain, you know, this is a little older, you don't see this as much, but hair a certain length, uh, mm-hmm. uh, all those kind of things. Legalism is legalism. But uh, my understanding is, so you, you, you must constantly be fed grace. Right now, that's not how they would put it, Tom, putting you must be constantly fed grace um, through the sacraments of the church because your salvation is not in grace through faith alone. Your salvation is in, in the church, which is in Christ. That's my understanding. So you have the, even the idea of, uh, um, we were talking to, a, to, a, to one of the elders at Rockport Sunday, and he was, the term he was trying to think of is ex operata operator, mm-hmm. right? the idea that um, this grace works through the sacraments, um, whether it's um, you know the person dispensing it is in a state is, is doing it right or not, or is in a state right. of grace or not. Right. So so it, it ends up in a very mechanistic view of salvation by connection to the church through the sacramental system. Right. And 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 that's the fatal flaw. You know, no one is saved by being a member of our church. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one is saved by um, you know by by adhering to to laws or rules. Or by being baptized in our water or taking our Lord's Supper. You know, those, as we would see, there are means of grace uh, by which God strengthens um, the faith of his people by pointing them to Christ. What's the benefit of baptism? It pictures our being united with him through through um, death, burial, and resurrection. What's the benefit of the Lord's Supper? Um, it, 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 it brings us Christ... Um, as he was crucified, not in the wafers themselves, you know, not, not something like the Middle Ages doctrine of transubstantiation, another doctrine that doesn't go back to the early church. Um, and, um, and, and by, by the act both of our remembering him to this remembrance of me and his keeping his promise to come, we are strengthened in faith. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's not, a, there's not a magical, you know, you know there's, a, there's a whole other thing, you know, the, the whole place of transubstantiation. You know, again, a doctrine that is very recent in history, and and a big, and I forget the switch centuries. You had the big um, battle over that within Catholicism. You know, in my in my mind, I'm thinking um, 11, 1200s, right in there, where you have again many of the Catholic theologians at the time strongly objecting to the to the doctrine. You know, in fact, you had some popes who were for it, some popes who were against it. But now it is by papal decree, a doctrine that you must believe. You know. Yeah. Um, so the. Um, so anyway, there's these. Um, okay, so when it, um, I looked up that word. What you know, Kyle was trying to tell us on in Wiki, and though the person um, giving the sacrament, they could be doing it improperly or whatever the could, person could be the devil himself yeah right the person receiving it has to be properly disposed with faith according to the wiki's explanation of it and so forth so. right but um, so when it comes down to um, is this trusting in one's own merits plus um, Jesus and his merits um is that what's going on, uh, or 
because that seems to be like a, a dividing line. And, 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 and really it is. And you'll talk to some Catholic theologians who say, no, that's not what we believe. And you'll talk to others who say it is. Okay. Practically speaking, it's, it's what we're practicing. How else could you come up with, in, in the Middle Ages, something that's still never been repudiated, the idea of the treasury of merits, where the excess merits of the saints go into a treasury controlled by the Pope, you know, which he could then dispense. Um, in, in Luther's era, he could dispense it you know, in, in the case of indulgences. And even indulgences, indulgences are no longer common today, and they're not practiced blatantly as they were in the Middle Ages. But they, again, they've not been repudiated, and they're still practiced in some parts, you know, of the world. Right. Okay. So transubstantiation, and I'm not pronouncing that quite word quite right, but um, so the idea of um, the body and blood. Um, so, the, so. Uh, from a Catholic perspective, you know what they would say. Well, yeah, the the words and the explanation of it came about during the Middle Ages, but they would say that goes back to the Church Fathers, and they would use words like um, Justin Martyr's words in the middle of the second century, uh, and other Apostolic Fathers, um, you know, just kind of referring to it as like this is the true body, true blood of Jesus. Like those words are used in that way. Sure, sure. They're used by some of the fathers. But the problem is it's, it's anachronistic um, to, to read in Middle Ages theology to the statements of the fathers. Okay. If you go back and look at it, that's not what they were saying. Um, and they weren't trusting in this as, as, as a salvific act. Um, and then again, it's also a bit of a cherry picking because then you also have all the church fathers, you know, who are, who are offering correctives you know, no, it's 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 not that you know it's not, um, it's not what developed, right? What developed was a very Platonistic view, right? That the um, the the body, that the, that the wafer and the wine retain their um, their their accidents, right? Their 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 appear their appearance, but they are transformed. In their in their actual actual substance, right? Well, that, that's a, that's a you, you can't even have that distinction without Plato, you know, mm-hmm. that you have this idea, and which which that explanation came about once Platonism was rediscovered, right, and brought into the church. Hmm. Um, uh, of course, uh, through someone like Aquinas, I believe, um, you know, bringing in that explanation. And there, there's a guy that's a mixed bag, right? You have uh, Aquinas, who there are many things I would agree with Aquinas, and there would be areas that I would disagree with him, um, you know, because he's one of those big figures. Um, but you, you just have this idea of this this um, transmutation to the real body and blood, so much so, right, that the, the laymen um, don't get the wine in traditional mass, right? And the... Uh, um, and, and the host would be held up, you know, and so the um, the common church member doesn't get the wine in the mass. Historically, I'm not sure what they do now. Okay, right. And it's, it looks like they do. Like I've been to wedding mass. And okay, stuff okay. Like and, and it may be uh, there was a period of time where, um, or maybe I got it backwards. Maybe they took the wine and not the wafer. You know, because there was this sense that if you drop the wafer, you drop. You know, after the the words are spoken and the and the and the transubstantiation takes place, that you you know you've dropped God. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I even had a, a former Catholic, 
agnostic that I once worked for, you know, one of his big objections to Christianity in general, you know, was 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 this kind of thing. He says, I, I was an altar boy and the priest dropped the wafer and you would have thought God hit the floor and we had to put little ropes around it and, and, and we had to we had to do all this stuff and then wash the floor and we couldn't step there because, you know, that, and of course that may have been a more superstitious expression of, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it was a fairly common because again, the, the, the wafer is thought to transform into the quite literal body right. and blood of Christ right. rather than being a symbol. Right. Um, okay, so here there's a couple of scriptural points that, um, for example, Peter um, and uh, Jesus uh, saying he's the, um, the rock, giving him the keys of the kingdom. So um, <laughs> do you have any, um, I guess, first of all, um, is that... Uh, it seems like Jesus, uh, like Peter's giving pre- preeminence among the other apostles, and I, I think that, um, like a lot of Protestants would agree with that. Um, there's Paul, who in Ephesians refers to the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, so that seems like not one person. But then you do have those words of Jesus um, referring to Peter's the rock upon which he'll build the church. Right, of course, the, the, the traditional Protestant uh, interpretation of that would be that it's it's upon Peter's faith that we're talking, okay. and not Peter as an individual. Um, and, and, and certainly this idea that he was giving to Peter a preeminent place as a pope. I mean, that's, again, an anachronistic reading in uh, to that text uh, for the sheer fact that nobody preached that in the early era. You know, and, 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 and certainly not again, lest we forget the, the Roman portion of the Catholic Church, Unified Church, um, was a small part of the whole church mm-hmm. uh, until the Muslim invasions of the 600, you know, decimated portions of orthodoxy. You know, that we tend to think, because we're very Western-oriented, that the center of gravity was was with Rome. Well, the center of gravity left Rome pretty early. You know, Rome itself, even as the as a capital, um, declined, and so did the place of the Roman Church. And um, you had, again, all these co-equal um, uh, patriarchies. You know, you had, you had eventually Constantinople. Before that, you had, um, you know... Um, the main church centers, you know, Jerusalem, um, Alexandria, um, and, the, and these others who were who, who were just as much centers of the Christian faith as Rome, and they would say when Rome tried to begin to assert itself that 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 she was in rebellion against God. I mean that that was a that was there, that was a that was a discussion even then. Mm-hmm. You know, that Rome was abrogating to itself a position she didn't own. And it's only the fall of Constantinople that, that eventually, you know, or the, the, the events leading up to the fall of Constantinople, that, that eventually left Rome as the last man standing, uh, at least in the West. And again, let us not forget, the East continued and still to this day doesn't recognize Rome's authority. Right. Right. Never, never, never did, never has, never will. And that's mainly what the schism was about, right? The schism was about a number of things. I mean, there were lots of things. There were, there were, there, in fact, there were a couple of little mini schisms before, and they would be healed over. It finally came down to a an insistence by the the Pope in Rome um, and his theologians on a particular view of the procession of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
and called the Filiquay cause clause um, that the East just said that's it. Um, and we look back at it and say, well, that's a minor point of doctrine. You know, from the Eastern perspective, it wasn't. But but it really wasn't just Rome is pushing a doctrine we don't believe. It's, it's, it's the fact that Rome thinks it can enforce a doctrine that we don't believe. Mm-hmm. And that's when the Eastern churches, right, said, we're done. Mm-hmm. And you had the final split. So what about that um, verse then? Um, do you uh, see it not as... Um, Peter, do you see it more of his faith or? Um, hey, give me the give me the reference. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is. Okay, sorry. I can, I, I can find it just sure. for a second. Then. Yeah. Um, just because I'd like to have it before me. Yeah, it seems. And I haven't looked at it in a while, but it it, it just seems like the most straightforward clear you know uh, at first obvious type of um, impression you would get that he's referring to Peter seeing how Peter's name is rock you know right right well Petra and and Petros you know so he's making he's definitely making a play on words Mm -hmm. Um, but Again, to read back anachronistically that this is a a positioning of Peter in a hereditary, right, um, right it's monarchical not, position, right. you know, is, is is certainly untrue. So that might be, yeah, that might be pushing things. But as far as somehow giving Peter preeminence there as a church leader, is. The, um, I mean, Peter and Rock, he doesn't say, you know, Peter, you are Petros, and upon this, you know, Petros, I'm going to build my church, right? Yeah. You know, he's, he, he switches to the, uh, you know, you are um, a rock, and upon this Petra, you know, a, 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 a different word. Mm-hmm. Um, not a different word, but a different um It's not an identical thing, right? Right. Uh, this on this little rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You know, Peter is, there is standing in for the apostolic church. You know, I, I don't certainly I don't think there's anyone to say, well, Peter's being given this ability to bind. You know, but but it didn't belong to Thomas, John, or James, hmm. right? And so Peter is just, you know, and let's put it in context. Peter has just made this this grand um, uh, confession. You know, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living of God, and Jesus is responding to that. You know, and so, you know, yeah, he is telling Peter the positions he's going to have, but I think it's a push to say that you know this is an exclusive position, exclusive um, statement about Peter, and he is being given a a position of. Um, ongoing preeminence. Okay. You know, in fact, that didn't work out historically, right? Peter sort of fades off the scene. We have two letters from him and, mm-hmm. and he was, he was key in the early part of Acts, right? And of course, that's where I think the keys and the binding and loosing to me seems to, to unfold is in the book of Acts. Um, Peter is the one who preaches on the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. The spirit falls, the church is born. Uh, Peter is the one they call to um, Samaria after others have gone and preached 
and Peter uh, is, and, and, the, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them, right? So you have the, you have the, the Jews, the Samaritans, and then Peter is the one um, that we have that wonderful scene with um, um, the centurion, um, Cornelius, and uh, uh, Peter goes and preaches and the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And then Peter sort of fades, mm-hmm. right? And you certainly in Galatians don't have Paul acknowledging Peter as his authority. You have Paul getting in Peter's face and saying, right. Peter, you're in the wrong. Right. Time to straighten up, bud. <laughs> you right. know? I, now, I believe they did so as, as brothers in Christ, you know, but, right. um, and then, and then the, the, the weight of the shift goes with Paul leading, not as a pope, certainly, but as, you know, the, the, the principal missionary spreading the gospel, you know, and, and we even lose sight of Peter until he finally shows up in, in his own letters in Rome again. Okay. So, um, so as far as that, re, you know, referring to Peter, perhaps, but it's just, your position is just pushing it to make all the, everything out of it, like the succession and everything, you know, uh, he's standing in for yeah, the, 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 doc, the doctrine of the, the apostolic succession of Peter, based on that verse, is is incredibly you know shaky and thin ground. Okay. What about just some of the weird things, like things that seem weird to um, Protestants, like for example, praying to the saints, um, or you mentioned you just went through like three of them. You listed all three: praying to the saints, Mary, or purgatory. Okay. Yeah. So like um, praying to the saints. There's, though it's not something I, I practice or um, advocate or anything, I can kind of make sense of it somewhat in just kind of thinking about the other person's thinking. For example, um, you know, I might add, I could just pray to God for my needs myself, mm-hmm. but I could also ask you to pray for um, pray for me too. And then, you know, Paul, he practiced that. He said, help me with your prayers and so sure. forth. Sure, L- living brothers... You know, okay. here on Earth, we're praying for one another. Okay, so um, are Catholics taking it a step further and just uh, asking people to pray for them who are alive in Christ, but who are gone? You know, for as far as living on Earth, I, I can imagine that maybe some think that's what it is, but I don't see that as what the official Catholic position is. Nor do I see it. That's the way many practice. Many practice, especially, again, the Middle Ages is my more yeah. knowledgeable realm. And, and I think this is still true in in places like, you know, across South America, where there's this, this, this idea that you can't really go to God. You know, he's too distant. And so I need another mediator to, to go for me. So I'm, I'm using, you know, these saints as mediators. I pray for this one, they'll mediate for me. Um, now, I'm using that word mediator just because, you know, we have the clear teaching that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's the whole point of the of the incarnation, right? The Jesus, the God-man, represents us before God. Even now, he intercedes for us. And so we're told explicitly in, in Hebrews and other places that Jesus stands and intercedes for us, that he's the one mediator between God and man. I have the great high privilege of going straight to the mediator Christ who promises that he hears my prayers, right? And, and so what, what even possible use would I have uh, of the prayers, Martin Luther is a is a hero of mine, right? You know, and I believe Luther walked with God. Um, interesting character, you know, complex character. Uh, even if he could hear me, which I doubt, right? 
I doubt very seriously, um, why would I go to him? Well, he has no more influence with Christ than I do. I, I have right. exactly the same standing in Christ, and I'm commanded in Scripture to ask Christ. I'm never commanded to ask a, a dead person on my behalf. But it is our practice to ask other people to pray for us. And there's verses like the, um, the prayers of a righteous man avail oh, sure. much and stuff like that. Yeah, and a, and a living brother. But right. you, you, you've moved into superstition and, 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 and ground, biblically groundless practice. You know, so I would say praying to Martin Luther or, or let's say praying to St. Thomas, uh, you're wasting your breath. Okay. Right, nothing's, nothing's happening. And I, so I think maybe it's from some of the apocryphal uh, books that, um, which I need to, should bring up, um, that Roman Catholics might kind of refer to a scriptural precedent for doing that. But then there's also, um, like in Revelations, is it the elders who have bowls that they of prayers that they prayers bring of the saints. prayers of the saints. But of course, again, see, there's a, a Catholic misreading because they read that term saints to mean dead and blessed and put set aside by the church in heaven, right? I don't Whereas, know. I was thinking they just meant the prayers of me and you. Biblically, that is what it means, okay, right? right? But remember, in the Roman Catholic sense, they've, they've, they have, they've moved this term saint to mean, you know, you have to be sainted. You have to go through this right. process. Um, you know, Mother Teresa only recently, you know, ha- became a saint, right? Whereas you and I understand that that the saints are every blood-bought child of God, sanctified by faith in Christ, as First Corinthians says, and and so we are we are the saints, right? But the elder who brings the prayers, mm-hmm. um, where are the prayers coming from? I, I guess that's the point. Not sure, so sure, much sure, sure. Of course, you, now we're in Revelation, right? This symbolic right. book, right? Um, where um, the, the, the symbols are representing the, um, you know, the fact that the, there's a symbolic way of saying that our prayers are, are, are reaching heaven, right? right? Uh, and the elder brings it. So who even are these elders, right? So let's talk about that. You know, are they, you know, is, is that some, is that some hierarchy of, of, of saints in heaven? No, no, there's no, there's no indication of that. Right. Okay. All right. Well, concerning what we call the Apocrypha, mm-hmm. what they call the dual canonical books or right. something along those lines. So that was a part of the Latin Vulgate for centuries, I suppose. And um, they would, um, I guess Roman Catholics would say, you know, Protestants took it out at the Reformation. Um, and that it was a part of um, the Christian Bible throughout the years. Um, and then, of course, the Greek version of the um, Septuagint, the Septuagint of the, the the Greek version of the Old Testament would have been um, the early church's scripture. Mm-hmm. So, what's our, you know, what's the Protestant position? Sure, on, sure. On that? First of all, again, an anachronistic back reading. Um, the Catholic Church did not officially endorse the Apocrypha as scripture until post-Reformation. Right. Right. Um, and, and they did so, my understanding, to preserve doctrines like purgatory, which have no grounding whatsoever in the New Testament. Okay. And so, you, and, and, and an almost sort of kinda in the, in the Apocrypha. But and it so, was, even though um, it, they made it official then when they came up with the name dual canonical. Right, right, sure. But wasn't it used 
it was a part of the collection. From the beginning, you have a you have a mixed bag on okay. that, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, Judaism did not accept those books as canonical. Okay. And to my to my knowledge, never have. Okay. Um, and they show up now. now we, we often say the Septuagint as if the Septuagint was one thing, mm -hmm. you know. Well, we should say the Septuagints because there are you know multiple versions floating around out there. Even today, there's not a there there, there is a there, there's a critical version of the New Testament, right? Mm -hmm. Where we say this is basically what the New Testament was mm -hmm. and is. That doesn't even exist yet for the Septuagint. Right, because we we're not sure of the of, of these multiple versions of Isaiah. Which one was the original? Which one? Because there probably were more than one translation made, right? <laughs> and so some collections of the Septuagint do contain the apocryphal books. Okay. Yeah, others do not. Okay. And so you have this mix again, a mixed bag. You don't have the early church fathers um, generally treating the Septuagint like scripture. Okay. You know, a Septuagint. Sorry. Rip, strike that. <laughs> Generally treating the, the apocrypha, the apocrypha right. as scripture. Mm -hmm. um, the Greek fathers certainly would tend to treat the Septuagint as scripture. Right. right? Um, and it, it, the Septuagint has a long history of, of, of being doubted as canonical scripture. You know, you have some who would, some who wouldn't. But again, no, no official pronounce, pronouncement until, you know, post-reformational. And the Reformation grew out of that strain which had never accepted it, right, and, and recognized that there was a clear difference. And, you know, I've, I've made it a, a, a project to, to, to read through um, the Apocrypha again here recently. Hmm. And, you know, there are parts of it that you're like, seriously, this would be considered scripture? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Uh, Especially parts of you know I'm, I'm reading through the through the Maccabees right now. Mm -hmm. Tried to read them in Greek, but uh, it's a the, 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 the vocabulary is really difficult compared to the New Testament. I mean, it's just it's a a much broader vocabulary, right? right? So I'm like, boy, I don't know that word. I don't know that word. So I've I'll come back to it. I'm, I'm not going to do that right now. Mm -hmm. um, but so the the Apocrypha, you have a real hard time making the case that the Apocrypha um, hands down belongs to Scripture. It's much easier to make the case. No, it doesn't. It's been seen as a companion. Uh, and so I, I, the Protestantism made the right call there. They didn't remove the Apocrypha from the Bible. That's just propaganda. Uh, they, they continued to recognize that it didn't belong. Okay. Okay. Um, purgatory. Um, yes. So... Um, my understanding of that is um, just as um, you know, uh, a Protestant person, they are uh, saved, they're made righteous in the eyes of God through the merits of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, they're not instantly um, you know, taken up to him, but there's this sanctification period. Mm -hmm. Not that there has to be, but that they're, uh, it's a part of, at least a part of, what's going on in our lives right now. Mm -hmm. So from the Catholic viewpoint, <clears throat> it um, it's like perhaps that sanctification period um, is not prepared. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to be just as charitable, charitable as I can. Sure, sure. Not uh, preparing us to be 
worthy of God, but preparing us to be with God, perhaps even though, you know, if our worth came from the righteousness that we have through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So they're extending that to um, beyond this physical life, that sanctification period, being prepared to be um, in heaven, so to speak, um, goes on. So it's that their view of purgatory. See, that's a very that's a very charitable um, uh, perspective because certainly historically that's not how it's been treated. Okay. Um, purgatory becomes necessary if you must merit acceptance by God. If you yourself must merit. Right? So it's not just sanctification. To no, be... it's it's um. So there are. So again, in that in that system, um, at baptism, I've received, you know, the washing away of um, original sin. And I'm 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 restored to innocence, which, by the way, is why back in the day, many people put off baptism as late in life as they could, right, right. to get a clean slate. Then again, that's a very superstitious view of it. And then I go I go through the process of living, and I have my sins, and I I, I go to confession. But over the time over over the years, I, I I still have all these sins that have not yet been taken care of, right? I need I need them purged away. And so, since it's necessary. For me to to have a perfect righteousness to be accepted by God, I need to go to a place where I can purge away those remaining sins uh, and guilt. Otherwise, I can't be. Because again, there's there's a critical difference between the two understandings. Um, and that may growing, be kind of like their view. That might like uh, kind of pinpoint what their view is. Perhaps like we receive grace to make ourselves righteous. Is that kind of yes, right, right? Okay, because because uh, one of the at least in the Reformation period, one of their their accusations against uh, the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone is they called it a legal fiction uh, that 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 you know we are counted righteous in Christ, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which is central to uh, to, to, to 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 the biblical doctrine mm-hmm. by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You know, Paul says in Romans four, "Blessed is the man whose sin God will never count against him." Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, he's quoting the Psalm there. And so I, I stand before Christ absolutely perfectly righteous so that, I, that when I die, I am welcome, you know, I'm, I'm welcomed into his presence based not upon my own righteousness, Titus uh, 2 and 3 say, but on the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so Romans 4, Titus, um, over and over, Hebrews, all those places we can go. But if, but, if, but if I'm not accepted wholly and solely on the imputed righteousness of Christ, if I've got to not only have, what, what are the words? We talk about an imputed righteousness. They talk about an imparted righteousness, right? Hmm. And so Christ imputes his perfect righteousness to me. I have right standing with God forever. That's why I'm a saint, not of my own efforts, but, but through his, that's why I'm righteous. That's why I'm accepted um, because of Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to me by faith alone. That's the Protestant doctrine. The Catholic doctrine would say, um, he is through the means of through the means of the sacraments and my good works imparting righteousness to me, but that process has never been completed, and so I need a place like purgatory. And it really comes down to um, my my belief would be they have confused sanctification and justification. Right? We see justification as a once for all final act in Christ, completed uh, upon uh, acceptance by Christ. We see sanctification as an on going process never to be completed in this life right mm-hmm. they join those two as one thing um, that, that 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 we are justified by being righteous 
we believe we are justified by trusting in Christ's righteousness. And that would be, to me, a critical difference. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I once had, a, again, this woman couldn't, you, I, she's not a theologian, right? She wasn't. So uh, yeah, I can't say she represents a visual Catholic teaching. But I had been, her, 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 my best friend was Catholic, and I had been um, sharing the gospel with him. I was a brand new Christian. I was zealous, you know, just by grace through faith in Christ alone. And um, I was over at his house, and she just let me have it, you know, because, you know, no one, no one can know that they're saved. No one can know uh, that, that their works are righteous enough. You know, how dare you tell my son that by trusting in Jesus, he can know that he is righteous. No, he can know that, he, you know, you, you know, but nobody has assurance of salvation. Hmm. And it's arrogant to say so. I mean, that was her perspective <laughs> as a lifelong practicing Catholic. Right. Um, and whereas the biblical perspective is just that we, we do have. Absolute. You know, this is our assurance before him, it says. Right. Um, and so, um, and, and the fear with, 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 with some versions of medieval Catholicism was that if you tell people they're justified by grace through faith alone, then they're just going to go sin. Right. Right. So you've got to hold this weight of purgatory and stuff over them to keep them in line. Well, the question isn't what works. The question is what's biblical. And by the way, it doesn't work either. Right. Right. And so you've made up. So let's go back to purgatory. So I can see the reasons so they think they need to have it. Where'd you get it? Right. Because you didn't get it from Scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, we should have brought this up when um, we were talking about the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper but you know John 6 is a part is something that they bring up quite a bit where Jesus really emphasizes this is my real body my real blood and and so forth Um, what would your response be to that Actually, he doesn't say, this is my real body, this is my real blood. Right. But he, and, and the question is, is he even talking about the Lord's Supper, or is he using an image that will later, because the Lord's Supper hadn't even been given yet. Right. Right. And so again, you're, you're, reading, you're, you're reading that back into it, or not you, but, but, but they're reading that back into it. Um, Jesus is talking there about, about faith in himself, um, and that he himself is true. His blood is true drink. His body is true food, right? Right. And, and he's talking about feeding on him. Right. Now, certainly the Lord's Supper later becomes a symbol of that. Mm-hmm. But, but to read that back in is saying here he is teaching us that, that, that that little wafer the priest holds up and consecrates becomes the actual body of Christ. And, and, and that that blood, that that cup transmutes into the actual blood of Christ. You're, you're, you're anachronistically, again, reading that back in here uh, because Jesus then goes on to say, I am, because in the context, I am the bread of life. Right. You know, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And again, look at the language he's using, coming, believing, coming, believing. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he, right. he's pointing us uh, to, to, to that, to coming and believing. For this is the will of my Father, whoever looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So through the through means of these symbols, we do look. Um, but, you know, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Um it, it again seems to me a, a grand. You have to have their theology in place to read it back in. You didn't draw that theology from this place, right? So it seems to me to be eisegesis, not exegesis. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, well, there's no other like questions that I have 
Um, just trying to think, is there... I don't know, just any um, thoughts about um, our attitude toward, um, you know, uh, Catholic uh, people as far as, um, you know, um, in, in enjoying fellowship with them or whatever. Like I've been to um, Catholic prayer meetings and stuff like that. Right now I'm a part of a discipleship group and one fellow in it, you know, he's a Catholic. Sure, I, I think we should hold fast to the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone, <coughs> and we should reach out in um, in, in friendship and love um, to uh, to professing Catholics. Um, we should celebrate the commonalities that we have, but we should hold fast too. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 when we have opportunity to challenge them, you know, do so in a, in, a, in a way that is kind. That didn't always take place in the Reformation, right? There was a lot of blood spilled. Right. Uh, unfortunately, on both sides. Uh, um, uh, the Catholic Church, you know, for instance, you read the 1689 Confession, and our church references the 1689. We don't use it as our confession. Uh, one of the reasons being because in the 1689, it, it explicitly identifies the Pope as the Antichrist. Hmm. You know, well, okay. if your cousin and your 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 your, your uncle and, and and two of your you know siblings had been um, you know killed by Catholic authorities. Um, for holding to the Protestant faith, I, I can I can see why you might think that, mm-hmm. you know, and um, if we stopped the story of the Reformation pretty early in the Reformation, we would say that the Catholics were the aggressors and they were killing Protestants, and could leave it at that. Unfortunately, human nature and sin being what it is, you know, you go forward enough, then you get to England, and there were mistreatments of Catholics there, you know, right. and and that's 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 the terrible tragedy, um, and so how should we treat Catholics today? We should treat them with love. Um, there are, you know, believing Catholics who, who are trusting Christ because we're not saved by, by our doctrinal precision. We're saved by trusting in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I meet a Catholic who, who confesses Christ, um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to fellowship with them, right? Um, I don't understand them because there's, there's enough stuff, you know, enough false doctrine within the Catholic system that um, it, you know, con- it, it concerns me. Um, but if they're if they're resting in Christ, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that to Him. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I will say that just like I'll say, there are some Baptists who hold some flaky things, and I look at them and say, I don't know how you believe that. You know, I can't believe you go to that particular church because, boy, they're gonna mess you up. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't mean ours is perfect. We're far from it, right? You know, we're always still. You know, that that's one reason. One of the keys of the Reformation is semper reformanda, always reforming, mm-hmm. always coming back to Scripture. Mm-hmm. And let me just say that, as long as we said there's anything else. So the attitude toward Catholics, love, uh, friendship, stick to the gospel, but do so in a way that is that is gracious and kind, right? Um, uh, the, I mentioned at first the place of uh, of Scripture. One of the one of the Catholic misconceptions I've found in discussions is they believe that when we say and Protestant misunderstandings, when we say sola scriptura, scripture alone, that we mean solo scriptura. You know, just the Bible and nothing else. That tradition has nothing to say to us, mm-hmm. right? And that is not the historic Protestant position. It's the it's the mutated position of some Protestants. Mm-hmm. The historic position is Scripture alone is the authority. Tradition does help, not as a co-authority though. 
But I read what Augustine wrote. I read what Justin Martyr wrote. I read what um, Calvin wrote. I read what others, you know, as the church has dealt with the text, they can help me deal with the text. The text is still supreme. Right. Right. But back to the Trinity, I wouldn't, my my doctrine of the Trinity wouldn't, wouldn't be where it is now without Tertullian Hmm. and Augustine Mm -hmm. uh, and these, these men who hammered it out in the, you know, in those early, what, third century. You know, third and fourth century when they're when they're when they're wrestling through the two natures of Christ. I mean, they've gone before me, right. and and I'm heir of that. So, biblical Protestants, biblical Protestants who 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 know their faith and know that it deeply anchored historically, value that tradition. Which means, again, is why we value the uh, the uh, ecumenical creeds. Mm-hmm. You know, the apostles, Nicene. Um, uh, my mind just blanked. What's the third major creed there? Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, um, Chalcedonian Creed, you know, right? Is that right? Um, goodness, uh, my, my brain is, is going. There's the, the, main, the, the, the big three. Um, but, but those are, you know, those are, those are valuable. And uh, so we, we can stand with Catholics on that. We can stand with our Catholic friends in um, many of the, the cultural issues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Catholic Church has made a, a, a brave and faithful stand uh, in the areas of abortion, um, uh, in, in areas of, uh, of some of the mandates coming out of a, a very secular age. Um, the Catholics have given, Catholic th- philosophers and theologians have, have helped us with their um, understanding of natural law, right? Um, uh, we Protestants probably are a little weak in understanding natural law. I don't go the whole Catholic way, and, and, and probably don't even know what I'm talking about. That's okay, but uh, but 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 understanding uh, the, the the how revelation and general how specific revelation of scripture and general revelation work together, and and how that helps us respond to a secular age. Um, hmm. I've I've gained from from many Catholic thinkers. You know, in in those areas, mm-hmm. and the and the church has gained from those Catholic thinkers. So, um, I think the danger is broad brushing and saying all Catholics are anathema because they. Well, no, it, the Catholic Church is not a, even today is not a unified whole. <laughs> you know, it's it's as the Catholic Church in its own ways is is diverse almost as Protestantism. It's just all under one titular head. You know. All right. Well, thanks, Pastor Scott. I really appreciate your thoughts, and your, it's just really well put and informative, so thank you. I appreciate it, Will. Let me look up one thing. You sure. Can, uh, it's bothering me that um, uh, my brain could not call um, Athanasian Creed. Okay. Athanasian. But there's also the Chalcedonian, because we talk about Chalcedonian Christianity. So anyway, we're getting far away. So yes, thank you, Will. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. God bless. Mm-hmm.